Ready? Absolutely. Here we go. You are listening to Learning Transforms from the Faculty of Education at the University of Victoria. We are coming to you from the traditional territories of Lekwungen people and recognize the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanich people's historical relationships with the land. Welcome to the show. Welcome to Learning Transforms. I'm your host, Ted Rieken, and today we're talking with Jeff Hopkins, who is the founder and principal of the Pacific School for Innovation and Inquiry. Jeff, welcome. Thank you. Jeff, you've you've been many things over your career as an educator. You've been a teacher, you've been a principal, you've been a uh, school district superintendent, and now you are uh, running your own school. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about the school itself and what inspired you to do this? Wow, how long do you have? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess what to start with the second part first, maybe um, what inspired it was um, having done lots of those different roles in the in the system, uh, seeing it from lots of perspectives. And uh, there's a there's a term that gets used a, a lot that's called the knowing doing gap. And I can't remember who actually came up with that term, but I don't think it was a, I don't think it was in an educational context. But um, seeing the system from all of these different perspectives, I began to become more and more acutely aware of the gap between what we know we're supposed to do and what we keep hearing about and studying and researching and what we actually do and really feeling, um, I don't know, the stress, I guess, between, between the two, the difference between the two, wanting to close them. And then having a, a system that's very well established already, um, it's a lot harder to change a status quo. So at some point... I don't know when a moment of madness I decided to step out and uh, start something from scratch. I guess that's an example of what um, I think it's Tony Randall would call institutional bypass, where you, yeah. you step outside the institution and just literally go around it. So you've you've approached that gap and now you're doing things as you think they should be done. What's the difference? How are you seeing what you do at SAI, uh, the Pacific School of Innovation and Inquiry, or SAI for short, mm -hmm. how, how does that, how does SAI fill that gap? Well, it's it's been nice to actually fill the gap to the degree that we have. Um, we didn't completely bypass the institution because we're still attached to um, certain regulations and uh, ways of doing business with the Ministry of Education in BC. But um, for the most part, we've been able to fill a lot of the gaps that we were aiming to fill. So. Some of the some of the ways we could do that was by uh, changing the structure of the school itself, how we organize learning, how teachers work with learners, um, how learners decide, have some agency in deciding what their curriculum will be, and how we decide. So the gap's been closed largely by being able to personalize, you know, 90 to 95% of what we do, uh, either the way people are doing something that everyone must do, or ap actually personalizing what people are doing completely. Can you give us some examples of what personalized learning looks like in, in your school? What are some of the projects that students would take up? Yeah, so we're, um, we, we're an inquiry-based school, and so um, we start everything with questions, uh, questions and quests, we call them, but um, mostly questions. And so um, we never know what we're going to get, but uh, some examples might be um, one, one learner who really wanted to know what it was like to run uh, a retail store that's what she saw herself doing and she wanted to be a, a business owner and manager so um we she decided she wanted to start a store so it was a christmas store she loves christmas and that's actually where it started with sort of a 
an interest in all things Christmas. So um, she came up with a name and that was the easy part. And then, okay, now what do we do? So we approached uh, a landlord. We're, we're located in a downtown Victoria. So we found a landlord with an empty storefront and proposed, what do you think about us taking over a storefront for free? And, <laughs> and then he said that was great because he said he'd rather have someone in the store at the Christmas time than have an empty store. So um, he said, you can have it for a couple of months for, for nothing. And so that was nice. And then she, she said, okay, how do I get inventory? We have no money. It's like, great question. So again, through research, she found that she could consign all of the items in the store. She juried them, brought artisans in, interviewed them, um, negotiated sort of uh, price sharing, and then um, had a store. And she actually ran it for three months, um, made about $18,000, uh, paid, paid all the learners who helped her, um, we trained her in things and she was working with a business consultant in the community on a few items, um, backed everything up when it was time to go. All the consigners came in, took, picked up their things, got their money. Um, it was a really successful, uh, fairly large, large and complex project. So that's, that's an amazing set of learning experiences for this student. How old was this person? Well, when she started this, she was 16. Um, and interestingly, she had had trouble accessing, um, the math curriculum particularly, and it was something that had always been a little bit of a barrier for her. And so we started using this as a way of getting at sort of that workplace math. But what she found is that, um, when she was using math in context, she was pretty good at it. And so she ended up accessing uh, a higher level of math as a result of sort of gaining some confidence in this, uh, in this experience. Um, so as you can imagine, some of the, the coursework that she was able to, to get credit for, you know, marketing, um, work experience, uh, entrepreneurship, um, lots and lots of um, digital media work, uh, lots of communication, lots of writing, and then banking all the time. She was constantly adding and subtracting and calculating percentages and uh, doing cash flow analyses and all of those things. Um, so, and then she ended up teaching some other business people in Victoria at sort of an impromptu coffee session about how to do cash flow tables that she had learned and none of them knew how to do it. They were all actually running businesses. So when a 16 year old is teaching, you know, 50 something year olds, how to do something that they felt like they should already know is pretty nice. How many staff do you have? How do you, you've got to support a project like that from many different directions. How many people do you have on your staff? We have a grand total of seven on our staff and right and now we have just under 100 um, learners at the school okay. um, our ratio is pretty good um, largely because we don't divide up anything in terms of um, uh, blocks in a schedule or anything like that so we don't uh, predetermine where people are going to be who's in what room with whom so there's quite a bit of um, you know maximization of flow and just sort of doing what makes the most sense at the time so there might be, you know, one teacher with a whole bunch of learners and someone else with one, and then it might change the next minute. So um, that seven people seems to be everything we need. Now, added to that, uh, our job is very different in that we're often connecting people with uh, mentors and expertise outside of the school because people are doing things a lot of the time that we have no idea how to do. And it, your ego takes a little bit of a, a beating, but uh, it's, it's good. So in a typical high school, you have a chemistry teacher and a math teacher and a, an English teacher and a French teacher and a physics teacher. But it sounds like your teachers are teaching a whole bunch of different subjects all at the same time, as are the, the students that they're teaching. Do you, do you assign subject areas to your, your teachers and, and students, or is it fully across the board integration? 
Um, we don't assign per se, but we do still hire people with all of the same expertise and, and we're trying to get the same breadth that you would have in any, any high school. So we do have people with, um, specialization in all of the areas that you mentioned and, and more. Um, and often when people are working with learners on their inquiry, um, they they become the expert in the areas that do attach to their, to their expertise. Um, sometimes they're stretched outside of that, but we also work as a team quite a bit. So you would rarely be working on a complex inquiry by yourself with a learner. You would often, as a teacher, you would often be, um, working with two or three other teachers to make sure that we were filling all the the gaps on the expertise, and then also sometimes drawing in from outside of the school. So in a way, uh, the teachers are seeing and doing more than they would normally do in a typical high school. But um, there, there is a point at which, you know, they probably feel like their expertise ends and someone else's begins. And that's where the collegiality comes in and the collaboration, which I had never experienced to this degree as a teacher in a typical high school before. So that that is also a very new experience and, and a very big skill set that we all had to get good at pretty quickly. You had mentioned it, uh, it when we began about the, um, the accountability that you still have to, uh, to measure up to the standards and the regulatory concerns of the, the Ministry of Education. How do you handle tracking of learning and demonstrating of uh, competencies and so on when you have 100 students and 100 different projects and, and seven teachers? How do, you, how do you feed into that existing system? I, I would start by saying I wish we didn't have to, uh, because it's interesting. We um, we basically run two parallel systems. One of them is this this wide open interdisciplinary system that's driven by people's questions, uh, and then at some point we well we we're always measuring the develop the degree to which they're developing competency and uh, the degree to which they're meeting competency within certain contexts and meeting objectives. Then we slice the pie the other way and we have to slot everything into these containers that are um, determined by the Ministry of Education. It's uh, disheartening to say the least. <laughs> it's a lot of work. So because we essentially do everything twice. Um, we've been pitching to the ministry to not have to do that anymore. And everyone nods and says, yes, that's you're probably absolutely correct. And we'll just continue to do that uh, until I don't know what we're waiting for. Um, the other thing I would say about it, and the reason I said it was disheartening, is that um, as soon as subjects get mentioned in our conversations with learners, and we do have to mention that at some point, it's usually right around now, middle of November or so, um, they they um, they stop thinking interdisciplinarily, and we have and everything sort of grinds to a halt or very close, and we have to get the whole machinery started again. So every fall. Um, that happens and we have to get it run, get it rolling again, which we do. Um, but it's, it's fascinating to see how our structure itself stops people from thinking in the way that everybody seems to agree young people should be thinking. Or, or thinking the way real life happens. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Like when we, when we leave these institutions, we don't go out and, um, do social studies for 20 minutes and then shift over and do math and, and then do uh, written correspondence. It's a, it's a fully integrated experience. Absolutely. Um, where do your students go once they leave SCI? What, what sort of things have you seen them take up? Do they go on and do post-secondary? Are they mostly entrepreneurs? Are they um, going to travel the world? What, where, where do they end up when they leave you? They're, they're doing, um, the two things that you mentioned first, a lot of post-secondary, um, many learners still see post-secondary as a place where they can, uh, access sort of a deeper level of, um, specialization or expertise in areas that they 
now know they really want to do. Um, we also have quite a number of learners doing the accelerated entry program with UVic, actually, where so there's five of them here right now uh, in courses um, that they do while they're in their grade 12 year. Um, we have seen, though, a sort of different attitude about post-secondary in that it's not um, what does the university sort of say I need to do, but what am I going to access at the university that's valuable to me? So we've seen a lot more um, dipping in and out of the post-secondary, mixing post-secondaries, um, and, and yes, and a lot of entrepreneurship. Um, we've seen more than 20 small businesses start in the last six years um, from our graduates, and uh, they're all very, very different kinds. Uh, and again, some of those are mixed with post-secondary as well. Um, any of those that you can describe in detail or name? Uh, sure. Um, I can, I can describe some in detail. Uh, some of them aren't named. They're just these very quiet, uh, uh, in the background kinds of things, but, um, graphic design businesses, um, uh, web design, a music production company, um, someone who does graphics that are visualizers for people's music, uh, that it's done in a three-dimensional, um, uh, graphical program. Um, some, some small retail businesses, uh, a clothing line, um, those are some examples. So do you have a preference as to how, you know, the kind of students or mm -hmm. what kinds of parents send their students? Those mm -hmm. are related questions, but I think they're, they're, they're different. And then there's the, you know, what are the costs associated yes. with it as well? Yeah. So do you, um, I'm just wondering what's the best way to come at that, that kind of student question is, is there a typical student or how do students end up at your school or is it a parental decision or is it the student that says hey my friend's going to this really cool school and i'd like to go to you know how do students right. find their way to your school yeah that's interesting it's changed over time so the first when we opened it was parents because no one knew we existed because we didn't exist um and i remember when the first family signed up their child to the school I actually just, I couldn't believe it. And I thought they were kind of crazy because we didn't have a staff. We didn't have a building. We didn't have anything. We had no track record. Um, they just believed in the philosophy and I, I thought they were pretty brave. Mm -hmm. Their, their third child is now at our, at our school. So some of it is, you know, family, families and word of mouth, especially. But I think originally the, the learners who tend to come to our school, um, and or their parents, although now more, more increasingly it's the learners themselves are finding us and saying, um, I really like learning. I'm very interested in knowing things, learning things, finding out about things, but I don't really enjoy the way we do it at school. Um, one girl at school said just the other day, she felt that, um, schools, uh, mainstream schools were sort of a, a lost opportunity. She said, you have all of these resources and all of these smart people and people who are enthusiastic and want to learn, and then you get a worksheet. And, uh, she just said, it's just so disappointing. And so, so for her and a lot of others, it's, uh, it's sort of more exciting and a little bit more, uh, what they hope for in terms of accessing depth. Um, I, I talk a lot about Vygotsky's zone of proximal development when I explain the school to people to just explain without going into a lot of detail here, just that everybody has their own sweet spot between when they're over challenged and when they're under challenged and when it's sort of just right. Um, so because we can personalize so well, people are often in that sweet spot, that zone, um, it's almost like the flow zone too of that, um, the author Csikszentmihalyi talks about they're similar. Uh, so I think they really enjoy that. So a lot of our learners are ones who haven't experienced that before, but are optimistic that they could in the right environment. Um, one thing, one place where we're overrepresented are learners who have experienced a lot of, um, anxiety, uh, 
and like clinical anxiety and they're at our school finding themselves um seeing ways to reduce that anxiety uh learning a little bit more about self-regulation because even our our physical environment is very very different people are able to move around and determine their schedule and their physical environment very easily and quickly if they have to change it quickly they can so all of those things sort of combine to uh, make it a little easier for for young people with uh, with anxiety i'm thinking as you're talking about anxiety and 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 learning again the, this work of mindfulness meditation and, and being mindful about one's own mental states and how you can self-monitor and self-regulate must be is that part of your curriculum you you work with mm -hmm. those ideas within the school yeah, I mean, we are personalized, so we wouldn't, we don't sort of uh, institute it, if you, as you know, if you will. But we do definitely, we're ready to go with it at any time. And most of our learners do take us up on some form of mindful practice, uh, whatever it might be. Many of them already have a mindful pra mindfulness practice, but some have never heard of that before. Just being aware of how you are, um, understanding what self-regulation is. And then learning some tools about how to regulate is really, um, really helpful or recognizing that you can't and you might need to just unplug for a few moments and do something else. Uh, so and that's just made a big difference to the kinds of interactions learners have with each other and the their interactions between teachers and learners. And a lot of our parents say that they have different interactions with their children since the, after they attend our school. That's a hard one to prove scientifically because they're getting older and they're in high school and things change anyway. But um, we, we have been hearing that a lot from parents, uh, even comparing it to other um, similar age children who they know. So imagine I'm a parent and I want to send my, my child to your school. Yeah. What's it going to cost me? Right now, because we're an independent school, there is tuition and uh, our cost is $7,200 um, uh, per year. That includes everything, including a laptop, because we do a lot of our management of the learning through digital systems. Um, what I'm dismayed about, but also hopeful about at the same time, um, is we, we have created a lot of systems and products that help people do what we're doing. And we give it away, everything, we license everything under Creative Commons. We give everything away to everyone for free, including a lot of our time. Um, we've had over 1,400 visitors to the school in the last six and a half years. Um, most of them are educators, and we are having conversations about how we can help them do what we're doing in their environment. Our hope w was that we would put ourselves out of business because we would like to not have to be an independent school doing this. We're trying to provide a model that everyone could do in the public system because all of us are strong proponents of the public education system. We're not trying to privatize anything or create a little special niche for people with a lot of money. Um, our cost, even our tuition cost is, is well, $7,200 isn't, isn't something I have burning a hole in my pocket. It isn't sort of the 20 to 25,000 that a lot of independent schools are. And that's on purpose. Our, our cost is exactly the difference between what we are, what we get funding that we do get from the provincial government and what it costs to run the school. We actually right now operate at about $350 per pupil below the cost within the school district where we reside. Um, so when people say, oh, you can do all those things because you have this great student teacher ratio, it's like, you have a better one than we do. And they don't believe me until I show them the numbers and they say, well, I don't, I don't experience that. I have no idea how that could be possible. And then we explain how we're organized and how they're organized. So it's the structural changes, the, the infrastructure that has to change as well as this philosophy about teaching or else um, you can't really enjoy those, those kinds of proportions. 
what would have to change in the regular system, if we can call it that, <clears throat> to allow them to do what it is that you do? You say there are structural changes that have to happen. You're a, a living example of being able to do things very, very differently and do it in a way that engages and motivates. What are the impediments? What needs to happen so that schools can do this on a regular basis? I think one of the biggest changes, and it's it's just sort of the power of the status quo, which is we always have built, especially in high school, we've always built a timetable that has, you know, eight pieces in it, and it's like music. And so it's all divided into eighths and sixteenths and quarters. And so um, teachers' um, assignments are built around that. Um, learners' timetables are built around that. Graduation is built around that. Um, so... I think if we could get away from looking at, first of all, courses as the be all and end all of how we organize learning, that would be the first step. Um, the second step would be to employ teachers in a different way and not, not look at their employment uh, as tied completely to a course or to a subject. I don't think there's anything wrong with um, having areas of expertise, especially in high school, um, but they also need to be given the freedom to go outside of that area and be the exercise the professional autonomy they have to know when they've reached the edge of that and then collaborate. Um, I remember when I worked in a mainstream high school nearby um, and someone said to me, this high school, which was a large, fairly, you know, mainstream typical high school, they said you could describe it as a hundred individual kingdoms with a common parking lot. And I thought that was funny. And then I didn't think it was funny anymore when I realized that that was about right in that people teaching was is sort of the last isolated private profession um, in the world as far as I can tell. Almost every other profession has become very collaborative and teaching has still remained this this thing that most people do in in real isolation um, from their colleagues. So I think that's another another area. But all of this comes back to how we are still using a very industrial approach to um, what what the job is of teaching and what the job is of learning as well. And then the buildings are built to fit that industrial model and uh, it kind of goes from there. I'm sitting and thinking as you're talking and uh, I'm reminded of that um, film, Most Likely to Succeed, mm -hmm. which you have probably seen <laughs> a very good kind of critique and expose of the traditional system and some really viable alternatives. And there's an interview with Sir Ken Robinson who talks about the timetable and uh, subject areas as a way to organize that timetable. And he said, the, those are not academic uh, or educational rationales. Those are organizational yes. yeah. decisions. And it's geared toward efficiency rather than doing what we know. And it comes back to this knowledge gap that you talked about before, the, doing, the knowing gap and the doing gap. Yeah, it was a reductionist approach, which was saying, how could we divide this very complex thing up into pieces? which you can't because it's actually an ecosystem. Um, so even even one of our competencies in our school is an ecological literacy. And interestingly, as learners realize what that actually means, because most of them don't know what that means, they think it means environmental ecology only, they they always, there's sort of an aha moment, usually two, about two and a half years into the school, and they go, oh, this is an ecology. This school is an ecological system. It's like, yes, it is. <laughs> um, and you can't chop it into pieces like that because the pieces don't exist independently of the other pieces. Um, we've, we've, I've had a good few good conversations with um, Sir Ken Robinson about, about our school and had a chance to interview him about what we're doing. 
Um, I guess most likely to succeed is about the high tech high experience, um, largely in, in California. Um, our biggest difference from between what they do and what we do is that uh, they're project based, which I respect and understand. Um, we have a lot of people who are doing projects, but um, we're more inquiry based. And the difference is just that we also want to get out of the producer consumer paradigm so that it's not learning has to be tied to production. Learning is tied to learning. Um, and so the only thing that I, the only sort of criticism I have of high tech high as successful it is and wonderful as is, cause it's a great place, um, is just that idea that unless you've produced a tangible outcome, you somehow haven't done something, you know, complete. And, and we just, we don't believe in that. Yeah. I remember, um, visiting high tech high and, uh, talking with some of the teachers there who sort of behind their hand almost would say, <laughs> well, some people think there's too much emphasis on that final project. Yeah. That's the driver, as opposed to you know the, the deeper philosophy of inquiry and asking good questions and, and searching in whatever direction, as opposed to producing something. But I, I suppose the DNA of that school reflects uh, Larry Ellison, who was a, mm -hmm. an, an adult educator and very focused on an internship and a project and the creation of something that you then put up and publicly present. Yeah, I think it makes really good sense and, and against a backdrop of a system that was more about um, how long did you sit in a chair and breathe the air? Um, it was it was really welcome. I think it was a really, really good idea uh, that had a, it came at the right time. Um, for us, I would say there are learners who benefit from focusing on a product because they, they need to so that they can see that they could produce something and see it and touch it and um, show it to people. And other people, we de-emphasize the concept of product because they're absolutely obsessed with product and they, they define their whole self-worth around product. And so for them, we, we de-emphasize it. So I guess, you know, again, our curriculum is pretty personalized in, in that way as well. Do you have exams in your school? We don't use them very much except for the ones that we must use as a, as a school within, within the BC education system. Um, and BC has certainly de-emphasized exams as a way of, of measuring people's learning um, for, you know, very good reason and through good research. Um, I will say, though, that for learners who want to go on to um, a post-secondary, particularly in areas of post-secondary, where we know they are going to encounter exams, exams becomes a personalized part of their curriculum, which is, well, you better learn how to write an exam then because they still exist. Uh, they are out there. They're disappearing pretty quickly. Um, um, but you're likely going to encounter one depending on where you're heading. So we help people learn to think of things um, the way they might be presented on an exam, how to anticipate things that are on an exam. And a lot of it's through actually exam construction. So they learn, how would you make a, a paper-based assessment um, or a computer-based assessment if you wanted to know that someone had learned something? Um, interestingly, when we teach that, they often then find examples of really terrible exams. And they say, well, this exam was not constructed very well. And we agree with them. That's correct. <laughs> so they know that they're likely to encounter exams and probably also a lot of not very good ones. Um, it's just a, it's just a thing that they have to practice. Uh, what proportion of students have to do those exams and, and what proportion are moving through a different model of assessment? Um, lots of students are curious about exams, so many of them would like to, you know, try doing things in that way. So they sort of are trying to learn about themselves. You know, what is the best way that I could show myself really more than anyone that I actually have learned, you know, some content or learned in depth in a particular area? 
so they, they all like to try exams from time to time. It's quite funny because often they make the exams or we make them together or something like that. Um, we don't think that not very many of them, um, need to do exams. And then when the, when they're coming to post-secondary, we, we try to get, give them an opportunity to come and just sit in on classes and sort of an informal audit, um, as early as possible. So they know what they're getting into and they can make good decisions. So many of them encounter exams kind of as an auditing experience, try them out, bring them to bring them to school, to the school with them and talk with us about them. So almost everybody gets to experience it in one way or another. Well, Jeff, this has been fascinating and, uh, and, and most enjoyable. It's nice to sit and chat with someone who's, uh, got is both a visionary and and a doer so thanks for coming and sharing your time with us thanks for having me and great questions it was fun to talk about this episode of learning transforms was produced by julie remy sound recording is by bryce manny sound editing is by emily mabobi and i'm ted reekin thanks for listening to the show <laughs>